Balaam was a, uh, a different kind of prophet. Uh, Balaam is an oddball. Uh, Balaam is, uh, his story is told in Numbers 22 or beyond if you're interested in tracking this. Balaam's different than a lot of the other prophets in uh, the Old Testament when most of the prophets we read about the Old Testament, they're intimately connected to the people of God. They come from the nation of Israel. Balaam did not. Balaam was outside of the people of God. He didn't walk with the people of God. He didn't travel with the people of God, but he had a reputation. Balaam had a reputation of having his prayers be answered. Whenever Balaam prayed, people responded and, and things happened. And so Balaam had this great reputation of uh, having his prayers answered. So when Balak, the king of Moab, had some trouble, he looked to Balaam to kind of help him out. He went to Balaam and said, hey, I've got this trouble and I need you to help me out. So what happened is that Balak is the king of Moab, and Moab happened to be a country, a, 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 an area, where the Israelite people were moving through. This is after the Exodus. So the Exodus, the Israelites are moving uh, through the, uh, the wilderness, and part of that wilderness was Moab. And they were traveling from one end to the next. There wasn't the problem that they were going to move in and take over things. But there was a concern that they were eating everything. They were like locusts. Remember, we're talking about uh, a million people to two million people. And so as they went from one spot to another, they would eat everything in sight. And so they were cleaning out the land. They were really having uh, a go here at, uh, in Moab. Uh, eating house and hold, every, wiping the place out. And so consequently, Balak is trying to get rid of them. Balak, the king of, of Moab. Now, he didn't want to try war uh, or opposition because the other kings of surrounding nations had tried that and the Israelites whooped them in warfare. And so Balak is trying something different. So he says, hey, there's this guy and he, God listens to him. So he goes to Balaam and he says, Balaam, I want you to curse the people of Israel. If war won't get rid of them, if, uh, if opposition won't get rid of them, then let's try something else. Let's try cursing them. And so, and it takes Balaam a while to eventually get around to it, but he eventually gets around to this and he goes through all the ritual that he has to go through in order to get God to listen to him. He goes through all of this ritual stuff and then when he gets ready to curse the Israelites, instead of a curse, out comes a blessing. He blesses the Israelites. And Balak is like, wait. I paid you to curse these guys. What are you doing blessing them? So he says, let's try it again. And he takes it to a high cliff overlooking all the people of Israel. And he says, see, look at all of them. They're eating me out of house and home. Curse them so that they'll leave. And so Balaam goes through his process and he gets all ready. And again, out comes a blessing again. And Balak is like, man, you're not worth the money. And so he tries it one more time. And once again, he completely fails and Balak is so frustrated, he just says, get away from me, Balaam, you're completely failing. I want you to do one job, and you can't even do it. You can't curse the Israelites, so just get rid of me. And, and Balaam says, fine, he goes ahead and leaves, but as he goes, he says, listen, king, if you really want to get rid of them, if you really want to put them on the wrong side of the spoon, convince them to engage in idolatry. Have them compromise 
their faith, if they compromise their faith, God will turn against them. And sure enough, they compromise their faith. So what you kind of get this picture that Balaam or Balak kind of lined the roadways with cult prostitutes and with idols and with all kinds of opportunities, all kinds of temptations. He loaded up the temptations on the way as the Israelites were moving through Moab in such a way that eventually the Israelites ended up partaking in a lot of the temptation. They said, well, you know, let's go ahead and engage. And they engage in a little bit of this ultimately to the rejection of God himself. And the Lord rebukes Israel and takes them, into, takes them to task over what they have done. Balaam was unable to curse those whom God had blessed, but he was able to convince Balak that there was a way to undercut the validity of their faith, and that was to tempt them to idolatry. If you are able, I would love it if you would stand for the reading of God's word from Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. To the angel of the church of Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith. Even the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to, stump, to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, Repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war, war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is conquered, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on it that no one knows except the one who receives it. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lord, grant to us ears to hear, and not simply hear, but then to respond faithfully to what you call us and charge us to, we pray in your Son's name. Amen. Please be seated. Once again, having your book of Revelation in front of you would be good, helpful. Here we have Jesus' letter to Pergamum, 2,000 years, literally 2,000 years ago, but also 2,000 years after Balaam and ba Balak, here we have a letter to Pergamum, and in the letter to Pergamum, we have Jesus saying basically very similar things to the church that is growing up there. Now, if the words that Jesus speaks are pertinent to Pergamum, again, the question is, are they relevant to us as well? The outline of Jesus' letter follows the same outline that we have seen before. There's a, the format is very similar. There's the introduction of who the letter is going to. This is to the church of Pergamum. And then there's a description of the author. How does Jesus describe himself? Here he describes himself in verse 12 as the one who has a sharp two-edged sword. And then you, turn, you move from there into a time of encouragement. Here is where 
Jesus says to the churches, says, hey, I like what you are doing here. I know what's going on, and I like this about you. Notice what he says to the church at Pergamum. I know where you dwell. Um, and we talked about this before, too. This is not Jesus just saying intellectually, hey, I have an unconscious awareness of geographically where Pergamum is. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I know where you dwell. I have, I have personal, I'm walking with you. I am there. I know what's going on. This is meant to be the encouragement to the church of Pergamum. Hey, God knows what's going on. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Now, if you ever wondered where Hellmouth is, or, you know, the, the way to hell, or something along those lines, I guess it's through Pergamum, because that's where Satan's throne is. No, of course not. The picture here is not that Pergamum is somehow in hell, or that Satan has built a throne in Pergamum, or something like that. This is that clear recognition that is a solid biblical teaching, that is something that this church, this pastor, everyone around us, the Christian nation, the Christian people that we walk with, everybody needs to hold on to this understanding. Satan is the ruler of this world. Now, the scriptures proclaim that over and over for us. There is no doubt that our Lord is sovereign over all things. There is no doubt that our Lord is reconquering, taking territory, owning this world more and more. There is no doubt that our Lord is victorious over these things. It is equally no doubt that the scriptures make it clear that we fight not against flesh and blood, but against the powers and principalities in this world, that the Lord, that the Lord Jesus Christ wages war against Satan, who is described as the ruler of this world. Now, most of us don't see that. Most of us don't see that in part because we are taken by the beauty of this world. We're taken by the good things that God has placed here, and we should be. God's goodness extends into every aspect of creation. God's blessing rules into everything in which he touches. God's sovereign control is in, it, it, uh, occurs in every circumstance. Having said that, the scriptures identify Satan as the ruler of this age. And so we cannot afford to ignore the fact that the opposition, that every single day there are those who oppose the promotion of the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Just like consistently during their wanderings through the wilderness, Israel was interfered with, that there were people that blocked the way and fought against that or through temptation, as with Balaam and Balak, and in other circumstances, they opposed the work and the movement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So it is for us today, those who are separated from Christ, ultimately, if they're conscious of it or not. And oh, trust me, so many people are not conscious of it, but they are working at cross purposes with our Lord. They are following the ruler of the kingdom of the air. They are following the ways of Satan in opposing the gospel message. That's the biblical reality 
that we find ourselves in every day. Every day. Now, notice that Pergamum finds themselves in that way too. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. I know that you dwell in the midst of this huge opposition. I know that you dwell where Satan himself is operating every day. I know that that's exactly the situation for the church everywhere, Christ says. He says here to Pergamum, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet, you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed. Uh, there was persecution. The opposition to the gospel message in Pergamum came about through physical persecution, through the persecution of the state in such a way that Antipas himself is killed. Now, we don't know anything really about Antipas. There's a couple of legends that are out there that I could regale you with. They're kind of gross, the way in which he was killed and stuff like that. But uh, those things are, are, are not important to us here. What's important for us here is that Pergamum, this faithful body of believers, are facing the opposition of Satan. And it is worked out in such a way that it has caused the death of Antipas himself. And in face of this opposition, the church at Pergamum here holds fast my name and does not deny my faith. Even though they are in the midst of where Satan dwells. Look at the end of verse 13. At the beginning of verse 13, we have that this is where Satan's throne is. At the end of verse 13, kind of to remind you again of Satan's presence consistently opposing the church. You have this assertion that Satan himself dwells here. Now when Jesus says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, who better to know this than our Lord himself, who walked here in this world, who suffered the greatest of persecutions, who was opposed consistently by Satan, the ruler of this age. Jesus knows what it's like for the church to undergo that kind of suffering in the face of satanic opposition. As we've been doing, we continue to do. Is this the experience of Hebron Church? Does Hebron Church have the experience of the opposition that confronts us from Satan? I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Verse 14, but I have some things against you. And now here's what we're expecting, if you're me. You're expecting God now to begin listing some of the things that Satan is doing in this world. Where is it that we face temptations in this? Well, how come, here's a great time for God to go after the Satan's work in this world to identify the distortions that he is doing in our thinking, to identify the different temptations that we all face as individuals, to identify the actual opposition that the church faces as we try to communicate the gospel message. Here's a great time for God to list those things. But that's not what he does. 
He says, but I have a few things against you, and the you that he has in mind here is the church. And at least in this text, we have to be careful that we do what the text leads us to do, which is not to start wagging our finger at how terrible the world is or how terrible it is that Satan rules this world. That's not the point of this text. And as much as I have tried to rail on that to get you to remember that we live in a place where there is constant opposition to the gospel message, the point of this text is not to beat up on the world, not to beat up on Satan's rule, but now to ask, what does Jesus have to say to us? But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teachings of Balaam. So also, verse 15, you have some who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Both of these groups were those who said, it's okay if we compromise just a little bit in this place. This isn't that central to our faith, so we can compromise here. Or it's okay if we dabble just a little bit. Or it's okay for us not to stand up so strongly and make a big point out of this. It's okay if we don't draw attention to ourselves and stand out the way we need to. It's okay to compromise just a little bit. Not seriously, but just a little bit. And in so doing, we end up acting just like Balaam, who taught the Israelites to stumble into idolatry. That's what eating food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality, this is not an anti-adultery passage or an anti-sexual passage. This is a passage that is speaking about idolatry and the temptation to slide into it and how we slide into temptation into idolatry by compromising just a little bit with temptation. Therefore, in verse 16, Jesus moves to talk about what his warning is, his counsel. What does he suggest we do? Therefore, repent. And if not, I will come to you soon and war against them. All right, good. So Jesus is going to come and he's going to war against those evil people that are tempting us to compromise in this world. No, the them there is us. It is the church. It is those of us who are tempted consistently to compromise. And how will the Lord war against them? With the sword of my mouth. We skipped over this, but how does Jesus introduce himself in this letter? He says, I am the one who holds the two-edged sword. What is the two-edged sword? Don't think of Jesus walking around with a sword. Think of him walking around with the very word of God. That is the weapon the church has. That's the tool that you have to fight off the temptations that come around you that want to tease you into compromising your faith. Do not compromise like Balaam taught Balak to tempt the Israelites, but rather wage against that temptation. How? 
Yes, our actions are important. Yes, our thinking is important. Yes, our fellowship is important. All of those things are important. But the weapon of choice that the scriptures put forward consistently is the word of God. That's how Jesus is going to come and correct and restore this world from Satan's hands. He is coming with the word of God. And this is why we so stress, so beg you to be involved in a Bible study. Be involved in a Sunday class. Be reading your scriptures in the mornings. Be reading it at night. Get to know what's here. Because this is the tool that Satan fears. This is the weapon that God will use in your life. It's a two-edged sword. It heals. It brings conviction, but it brings comfort and love. And if we do, those who have an ear, let us hear what Jesus says, what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers. Here, incidentally, the text shifts from speaking plurally of the church as a whole, now to individuals. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. Now, what is the hidden manna? Uh, We can talk around this, but the scriptures ultimately tie the manna. This is the bread from heaven. This is what the Israelites were nourished on while they were walking in the wilderness. And this is what every believer is nourished on today. It is the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ identifies the manna with himself, that he is the bread from heaven. And so what the point here is, for those who conquer, for those who resist the temptation, to those who resist the compromise of their faith, they will hunger and thirst for Jesus Christ. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. And Christ will promise that he will satisfy that desire for righteousness with his own life's body and blood. We will partake of the hidden manna and Jesus will give him a white stone. Uh, The imagery behind the white stone is is of great debate in the scholars. Some people identify it with a a, a jury uh, verdict of not guilty that they give you a white stone. Some white stones are seen as an entrance way into a sporting event or something like that. So it would be, in this case, your entrance into uh, heaven. Some see it as part of the manna itself that came down from heaven, uh, diamonds and, and wonderful gems. It's less interesting what the stone references as what is on it. For a new name is written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. A new name. Now, remember this. The name is not a label. The name is a description, the essence of the character. To the one who overcomes. Jesus doesn't give you a, a secret name that the two of you whisper together or something like that. Jesus grants to you that name that you know it's the name of christ himself it's the character of christ himself to the one who overcomes you will receive the nourishment of jesus christ himself and through the nourishment of jesus christ himself you will be transformed more and more into his very likeness what does it mean for the church What does it mean for Hebron Church to dwell in a world 
that is ruled by Satan. For we do. Every day. Well, we hold fast to his name. We hold fast to the faith. We do so by seeking to be nourished by Jesus Christ himself and to be transformed more and more into his likeness. And in so doing, of course, that overriding point of the book of Revelation as a whole, we are to be encouraged, brothers and sisters, and again, take the text home and read it out loud one to another, for blessed are those who hear the words so that you can be encouraged. God is in control. Be encouraged. The future is safely in his hands. And be encouraged, for he has already won the victory. Lord God, we thank you that though we find ourselves in a world that is ruled by opposition to you, opposition to the gospel, we thank you, Lord, that you are nevertheless sovereign over all things and that you are conquering this world, that you are resisting the temptations that face us every day to compromise our faith, that you are strengthening us with the body and the blood of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.